This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street and Fly Racing. For handlebars, chains, sprockets and all fitments for your bikes, check out renthal.com and the Fit My Bike section. On today's show, we're going to look forward to the San Marino Grand Prix and Adam Wheeler, I'm going to give you the option of uh, pronouncing uh, the full title for the San Marino Grand Prix. Steve, considering I'll probably have to warm up to the subject for the Paddock Pass podcast note show um, from Italy this weekend, even with the power of pizza inside me, it's still going to be a tough job. But I'm going to pass it over to Dave because um, actually on our YouTube channel, his pronunciation of all the corners at the TT Circuit Assen, not the other monstrosity of a label people tend to give to that circuit, um, that, that's our best viewed video. So, Dave, um, you, you know, your vocals are obviously appealing to, uh, you know, a higher percentage of people that like this podcast. So how do we pronounce round 14 of the season? Just imagine if Neil had pronounced those corners. It would be, it would have gone completely vile. It, it would have, you know, it'd be right up there with uh, uh, the old Gangnam style, I reckon. Um, so, uh, hang on, wait a minute. Uh, I, I can't even, well, first of all, I've got to find um, the name of the thing. Ah, yes, there we go. So, it is the Gran Premio Griffin di San Marino e della Riviera di Rimini. Excellent job. That is a a solid effort there. Adam, you struggle even to get the name of the Paddock Notes show correct, so uh, you had no chance with this one. But uh, Neil, you're getting ready to head out to San Marino as well, right? To Mizano for this weekend's race, and uh, it's looking like it's going to be pretty warm one as well for most of the weekend but a little bit of bad weather on on the schedule as well so it's gonna be interesting to see what happens out in Italy. Yeah it wouldn't be the San Marino GP without uh, at least some rain uh, interrupting the schedule at some point. Um, Yeah busy weekend ahead Steve with uh, you know three championships online or four championships actually we've got Moto E and the finale there this weekend too Um, so yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be a busy one. Um, Griffin what is Griffin by the way why is it the Griffin Grand Prix of uh, San Marino? Because it's cryptocurrency and or crypto, well, something crypto-y. It's, it, it, yeah, uh, basically, I, I did see the NFTs, uh, um, the turnover on open seas, which is the uh, largest NFT market, is down 99% this year. So uh, <laughs> I think it's great that MotoGP is really going into such a burgeoning market. Now, you mentioned four <laughs> championships and obviously you're advocating Moto E. Does that mean you're keeping a keen watch on the Moto GP Esports Championship as well last weekend? Oh, of course I had. Yeah, that is the number one championship, which I'm uh, keenly interested in. Um, yes, um, yeah, the big, the big finale of Valencia. That's, the, that's where the road circle is uh, on my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Neil, I do have to say, as far as the Moto E MotoGP Esports World Championships concerned. I'm all about Andrea Severi 11. He's my man. I think he's got the opportunity to really get the job done this season. What do you think? I think we should move on before we lose listeners. (laughs) And the will to live. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, we've got a fair bit of news to get through this week because, uh, Adam, in the rider market, just as we record this pod, it's just been announced Ron Mir is going to Honda. Obviously, Ducati have made their big announcement. Or and F Aprilia have announcements coming uh, pretty much left, right and centre. So uh, get everyone up to date on the big news in the rider market. Well, Steve, do we start with the past, the present or the future? Um, as we're recording this, we know that the uh, Inea Bastianini is going to be the second Ducati course rider for next year. Actually, is it a two-year contract or a one-year? Is it a, mil- it's a two-year deal? Right, okay. Thanks, Two Dave. years, yeah, for 2023 and 2024. 
So that took place a, a couple of days ago. Uh, while we were, actually we were recording this podcast, um, the announcement about Joanne Mead joining HRC for a, a two-year deal has just dropped. Um, and, you know, shortly, I think after we finish recording, um, you'll have the RNF Aprilia squad for next year declaring Raul Fernandez and Miguel Oliveira as their riders. So uh, it's um, suddenly become a busy time for teams and brands to make confirmation of their their rider lineups for next season. But um, I, I don't know. I think we should start talking about the Ducati decision. I mean, it's something that we, we know has been in the offing for the better part of, what, three or four months um, and finally won by uh, another Italian. Uh, I thought, what I found interesting was that uh, Pramac also issued a press release, uh, you know, basically confirming Zarco and uh, Martin for next year. Uh, but they only sent out an Italian. It seemed to be very much an afterthought. It was sort of, you know, done. Someone had, someone had forgotten to do something rather than a, a, a positive announcement. So, uh, you know, it, again, it was something we all knew. Uh, but it is interesting that they chose Bastianini, Bastianini over Martin. I think, um, I mean, Martin is obviously really, really quick, but, um, Bastianini has just been more reliable. I think, you know, he hasn't crashed as much. He's been a little bit more consistent. Yeah. Like Neil, realistically, did Ducati have a choice to make in this? They've got one rider that's won three races, one rider that hasn't won any races this year. They've got one rider that's been very fast over a single lap in qualifying but the other rider that just makes up a lot of positions in races. And, and given that next year we've got the sprint races as well, maybe being able to, to make those overtaken moves might be at more of a premium rather than just being at the front of the field from the start of the race. Yeah, just about um, about Pramac not really making a big show and tell of their uh, rider announcement. Maybe it was that they didn't want to further depress Jorge Martin after uh, the news on the uh, the Ducati by reminding him that he was going to be in Pramac for another year. Um, yeah, I think it was actually quite a difficult decision, Steve, um, because I think we've mentioned a few times this year that um, that both Bastianini and Martin are blindingly fast. They're very talented riders, but they are kind of flawed in a similar way. They've both been as inconsistent as each other, really. It's just that when Bastianini's been good, he has been faster than Martin this year. He's been faster than everyone this year when he's been good. Um, you know, last year, I think Martin won uh, the first satellite victory ever for Ducati. This year, Bastianini's done it three times, so that is, uh, you know, that's an achievement in itself. Um, I think it just boils down to the fact that, um, you know, Martin, yes, you could say he's been slightly unlucky in that he's on a bike this year that hasn't, that clearly isn't quite as good or as sorted as the uh, the factory team. He's really struggled to get his head around that. Um, but you just look at the other side of the garage and, um, you know, Johan Zarco, has been a lot more consistent than him, has more podiums than him. Um, and yeah, he just hasn't really managed to find the heights. And I know there's been some physical issues that he's had uh, this year um, and the technical issues or the, the, the mechanical issues that he's had that I mentioned. Um, but yeah, we just haven't really seen the same Jorge Martin as the one we saw in 2021. I do wonder if uh, personality came into it because if you look at the two riders when it comes to statistics, there's not really too much between them. I mean, Bastianini has five podiums, three wins, as Neil said. I mean, he's currently sixth in the championship. Um, if you look at Jorge Martini, he has a grand total of six podiums and one win. Uh, he was ninth last year and he looks like he might be ninth again. 
you know, in terms of that, that kind of potential, there's not that much of a separation. Um, but, you know, when it comes to perhaps working with a team or representing a brand, I mean, they're, they're kind of tiny percentages of what might actually go into a decision of, let's face it, what is now perhaps one of the most coveted saddles in the paddock, um, being the teammates Becca Bagnaia on the official Ducati. You know, I mean, Martin, um, I think in the beginning of the season really dropped the ball. Uh, I mean, what was it? He finished second in Argentina. Um, and then, you know, there was just a run of kind of miserable results. I think he finished eighth, uh, 22nd. There was one result just outside the top 10. And then, um, you know, for, it seems only in the last five rounds of the series that we've had, he's managed to notch together a few consistent results. Almost as if someone said to him, listen, you're going to have to show Ducati course management that you're capable of not being swinging from podium potential to the gravel. Um, like Neil said, there is a, a slight caveat there with the development of the bike he's had to do this year. But I just wonder if, if, if Ducati looked at both riders and thought, actually, Bastianini, A, he's Italian, B, you know, he seems a little bit more laid back. I mean, Martin, I think, could be a bit narky in, in some of the media debriefs and some of the feedback uh, or some of the questioning that he's going to face in Misano. Um, but, you know, as we saw in the MotoGP Unlimited series where he was one of the sort of protagonists really as the rookie, uh, you know, he, he has been in the spotlight. And uh, like Neil mentioned again, he hasn't really risen to, to the kind of golden child elevated status. I think you make a good point about uh, the, the fact that there isn't really all that much to choose between them. I think because um, there was a few people saying, you know, is it because he's Italian? I think you only choose a rider for their nationality when all other things are equal. It becomes one of the last uh, sort of one of the last selection criteria or unless, uh, you know, they bring you a massive amount of money. And this is obviously not the case you know, for either Martino or Bastianini. Um but the two riders are quite close. I think Bastianini has got a little bit more upside than uh, than Martin. Um, if the fact that he cared that, that he's Italian sort of uh, it gives him the edge, but only just because uh, you know that they are so close. You know, the, the decision was always going to be sort of like ninety ninety nine percent based on uh, results, ability, and what Ducati believe the potential is, uh, and one percent on other factors. Yeah, because even when you compare the two riders, there's very little to choose between them, Neil, all the way through their junior careers. There's only a few weeks, I think, between... I think Bastianini's a, a few weeks older than Jorge Martin, but all the way through the junior categories, other than the fact that Martin was always stronger over a single lap, especially in Moto2, it seemed to make a bigger difference. But there's very little to choose between them, both the world champions in the feeder classes, Moto3 for Martin, Moto2 for Bastianini. But I think it's easy to forget just how good Bastianini was in 2020. He was very consistent all the way through in a very strange campaign for all those riders. And then since he's jumped onto a MotoGP bike, both of them in their second years, we've been able to see this year in particular just impressive race performance from Bastianini. But like you said, inconsistencies as well. I, For me, I don't really have much of an issue if Ducati had chosen either rider. But I think on the basis of what we've seen this year, choosing Bastianini for me was the right choice on it. Yeah, I think you had, uh, basically you've had two seasons, almost two seasons of of genuinely quite impressive performances from Bastianini. You've had one genuinely impressive season uh, from Jorge Martin. I guess you look at maybe the thought 
that Martin, as we mentioned a few times, um, is quite susceptible to injuries, quite susceptible to physical issues. I mean, if you were sitting right now around the table and you were plotting a 2023 championship challenge from one of the two, you would say there are probably less obstacles in the way of Bastianini than Martin. But again, I think it's I think it's very tight. I really don't think this was a an easy, clear cut decision. And uh, you know, I found it quite understandable that that Ducati kept pushing back the deadline. I mean, it was going to be, I think. Um, by Aston initially that we were going to have this decision then it was after the summer break and then it was the end of August so um, understandably they've they've also felt the same um, not much in it but I guess you know as I said before three victories with a satellite Ducati on a year old bike is, is really quite something impressive in itself and yes there have been a few other issues that Bastini's had this year but those three wins in, the, in themselves I think have uh, have been enough perhaps to show just how good he can be when everything's working right. Do we do we like the system, the, the kind of shootout that Ducati created between the riders? I mean, you need the kind of uh, cooperation really of the teams like Pramac and also Grissini, don't you? Because eventually, as the factory team, you're taking one of their riders away. Um, I'm sure Grissini's squad might have been able to find a slightly bigger sponsor if Bastianini had stayed in their colours because he's already brought X amount of media value or exposure to the team this year. So now, you know, they're going to have to change their lineup. Okay, they might have a rider from a different nationality. Uh, I mean, was it, I think, one of our colleagues, was it on Speed Week? I remember that, you know, Alex Marquez is already bringing perhaps Australia Galicia to the team. So that's some sponsorship value. You know, there's factors like that. But, um, you know, it's it's obvious that Yamaha or Honda, um, you know, cannot do this kind of shootout system really to decide riders that go next to, say, Mark Marquez. But uh, it's kind of interesting that Ducati have put these two into this predicament yeah and I think it's interesting as well that when you look at it they've got this big stable of riders but as we've said time and time again about Ducati they still can't win the championship is this a move where you think can help them win the championship and I don't think anyone's able to look at it and say yeah definitively this is going to make Ducati get over that hump that they have they've got so much strength and depth in terms of bikes teams and really good riders but do they have a, a great rider, one that can win the championship? And they still don't really, if you, if you look at it from, will Bastianini be the one that makes that step? And it's hard to look at it and say with the inconsistencies he's had, that they have that. I think this battle for the factory seat is similar to uh, what we saw. It was 2016, towards the end of that year, when Scott Redding and Daniela Petrucci were both in the Pramac squad. They were both fighting for what was essentially at that point the third factory Ducati seat um, that was going to be uh, put into the the Pramac squad. Now, obviously, you know Pramac runs two factory bikes, um, but at that point, it was uh, there was only going to be one in 2017. In the end of 2016, both Redding and Petrucci were fighting it out, and there was like an internal competition for that. And both of them basically uh, went on, I think, their worst runs of the season when they were locked together in that competition, um, and that showed that you know the the, the pressure. Uh, was really getting to both of them. Petrucci eventually got the nod in the end. And you look at the recent run of results, you look at both of their performances in Austria. I mean, I think we both went into Sunday thinking that Bastianini and Martin had a chance of victory. Bastianini for sure on his first uh, MotoGP pole position. But uh, both of them made mistakes that eventually led to their their own downfalls, their own separate downfalls. And um, you could say that <clears throat> Ducati are in a position to do this because of the number of bikes and riders they have in the grid. But you could also say... And you could also say that this is this is kind of warm up for the pressure that they're going to be feeling pretty much every single weekend when they're in the, the factory squad. 
it's a kind of sink or swim situation. But you could also say that neither of them have handled this uh, particular recent run where everything's on the table. They have to, they have to perform. They've, neither have handled it really that well. Yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting points, Neil, just because when you're in that satellite team, any good result you get is always viewed that you're a hero. And then once you're under pressure, when you're in the team that's expected to get those results week in, week out, everything changes for a rider. And we've seen that time and again, whether you look at KTM riders going from Tectois up to the factory team or Pramac up to Ducati or you know a- anything like that. It really is a, a very different kettle of fish for them. I mean, just to use a football analogy for a moment, uh, clubs tend to sign players because they want to improve their squad. Uh, you know, Ducati maybe have said to Jack Miller, look, you're not continuing in this setup. Or Miller was offered the KTM contract and decided to jump before he was pushed. But do we do we think that Bastianini really is a huge improvement over Miller? Um, you know, he has age on his side, of course. I think there's four or five years difference between them. But, you know, Miller, maybe due to the fact that he knows, you know, his days on the Desmos Adichie are numbered. But, I mean, he's been pretty consistent of late um, and he has delivered some key results for, for Ducati course in, in the last couple of seasons. But um, I, I wouldn't look at Bastini and think, well, there's a definite world champion in the making. They've got to sign him and, and snap him up, um, perhaps as you would, would say somebody like Juan Mir. Yeah, but I, I think the it's about sort of uh, potential. It's about upside. It's about what could happen. Uh, Ducati, uh, Jack Miller has been with uh, Ducati now for, what, four years, five years? Um, they know exactly what they've got with him. Um, they know exactly what he's capable of. Uh, and what he's capable of is, is, you know, very impressive, but it doesn't look like he's going to be a MotoGP champion. Um, if you look at Bastianini, Bastianini has shown flashes. Uh, the, the fact that he's won three races this year shows that, that, that he has a lot of potential and it's easier to fix the weaknesses rather than, uh, uh, you know, sort of lift someone, lift a rider up to, to, to the next level. So, um, I think it's a gamble. It's a gamble on the future, basically. Yeah. And I think that you always have the risk when a rider makes the step. And I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with, with Miller at, Ducati. I think obviously for Peko Bagnaia, he was very happy to have Miller there as his number two effectively and felt that they could work well together. And it's always a risk whenever you then change that dynamic because as it is, Peko is the top Ducati rider. He has been for the last few years. He's the rider that's gotten them closest to getting over the line since Davi and Davi was up against Mark. So it's it's a tricky one for what uh, Ducati want to do. And like you said, Ad, similar to making changes with a football team, you can bring in better players, but it can change the dynamic an awful lot and change the atmosphere in the dressing room. And that's what Ducati needs to be aware of. And let's be honest, over the years, Gigi Delinia, whether it was in Superbikes or in MotoGP, hasn't cared about the dynamics within the garage. He's cared about the bike and making sure that the bike is as good as possible. He views it that he's done his job to get the bike to be the best on the grid. But Gigi hasn't done his job. Ducati haven't won the championship. So now's whenever, again, you're into that stage of thinking about what's going to be what gets Ducati over the line. In Superbikes, they did it by bringing in Alvaro Bautista again this year. And they're closer to winning the championship than they were with Chaz Davis or Scott Redding. They need to do something similar in MotoGP. Just uh, two like little things on um, Bastianini, which might be of interest. That I think we've maybe mentioned in previous shows. The first is that he um, has done best in his career when he's in a kind of small, tight 
uh, knit squad, Italian squad, where there is not really a great deal of pressure or a great deal of expectation. You think of maybe when he was in the Grassini Moto 3 team, you think of his Ital Trans years in Moto 2, you think of obviously the Grassini team in uh, Moto GP. Um, but when he's gone to somewhere where there's big expectation and it's maybe less familiar, he has struggled. So that's going to be a, a point to keep in mind. You think of his Australia Galicia year in Moto 3, which was just a, a disaster and he didn't feel at home at all. Um, and then the second is that we don't really see very many signs of him and Peko being um, that matey or, or close. You know, Jack and Peko seem to get on really well. Enea, I think it was in Le Mans, uh, was quite uh, snipey and was quite happy to basically talk up the fact that back the Peko doesn't want him in the squad because he's a bit scared of, uh, of, of Bastia's speed. So I think that's another interesting dynamic as well that could uh, come into the factory team because it's been a fairly happy place in terms of the riders getting along for the last two years. Yeah, as always with the Paddock Pass podcast, it's a happy place. And uh, that's because of our sponsors. So we're going to hear an ad from one of them. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Honda and Aprilia's moves for next season. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And David, as promised, we're going to talk about Honda's decision just announced as we uh, start recording this pod that John Mayer will sign for the HRC squad, Repsol Honda rider next year alongside Mark Marquez. And uh, what's your immediate thoughts on it? Obviously, it's been probably the worst kept secret in the paddock, but it's nice to have the the news finally confirmed. Yeah, I mean, my immediate thought is that, God, that took a long time to actually uh, get done. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, basically, we started hearing rumors about this almost immediately after uh, the news broke that Suzuki was going to be leaving MotoGP. Um, we knew that uh, Honda were actually chasing Juan Mir to come up to MotoGP, but uh, he chose to ride for uh, Suzuki instead. Um it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how well Mir can do. Uh, I'm not sure how well the bike is going to suit him. Again, that's, that's one of those sort of uh, questions. Mir is quite aggressive. So I, I, that at least will uh, sort of work in his favor. And he's, he's also capable of being smooth because the thing about the way that Mark Marcus rides is because let's face it, the bike is built is built for Mark Marquez and will be built for Mark Marquez. Um, you need to be aggressive, but also very smooth. Uh, and I think that uh, Mir is capable of doing that. Uh, and then we have to wait and see sort of how it goes on. But I, I mean, if you look at the history of the riders that have been in there, you know, we've had Jorge Lorenzo, we've had Alex Marquez, uh, and now we've had Paulus Bargaro. It's very, very much been a question of, um, you know, being chewed up and spat out by Repsol Honda, um, mainly just because of Mark Marquez, because Marquez is so good. Um, it's hard to keep your head sort of focused, uh, and also, 
I think this is a lesson which uh, um, Paulo Spargaro sort of found out quite quickly. This is Mark Marquez's team, you know, and when Marquez is there, it's Mark Marquez's team. And you, uh, uh, the, when he says jump, they jump. And just because you want something doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to listen to you. So that I think is going to be the biggest challenge which Juan Mir faces. Yeah, I thought that was probably the most interesting thing about seeing Mark back in the garage at the weekend in Austria as well, Dave, was that he was immediately the centre of attention when the riders were coming in and talking about the bike. He had Mark there and it seemed that Mark's feedback was almost as important as the riders on the bike, even though Mark hasn't sat on the bike for for months. And I think it shows you the, the shadow that he casts over the whole team. And Adam, when you look at Joan Mayer, he's going to turn 25 tomorrow. He's won one race in the last five years. He's won his world championship, obviously, and uh, nothing can be taken away from him for the performances that we that we saw that season. But one race win in five years in Moto2 and MotoGP, how good is Joan Mir? I mean, Steve, he's, he's class. That's why I don't think you can say the recent results that he's had and some of the struggles on Suzuki for the last four months really have a bearing on the contract negotiation. But just to sidestep your question for a moment, I do find that the, the contract process with HRC must have been a very bizarre one because Mia would have had a set of demands. He may have had um, a list of concerns, but he wasn't necessarily in a powerful position to to force much. Um, it's not. I don't think HRC exactly headhunted him. Uh, they could have picked from you know a couple of other. I could have taken his teammate Alex Rins, for example. So you know, I think Mia would have had as many questions for Honda as Honda may have asked of Mia. But then, you know, also when it comes to price and value and whatever else, that is another issue that has to be debated. But um, <clears throat> Mir, I think, is, is, is one of the, is right at the top of the shopping list for, for riders in MotoGP. And um, this is another strong acquisition for HRC. And like Dave said, um, if he includes Danny Pedrosa on that list, then 50% of the riders who have been in Repsol Honda Colors are, are no longer actually physically active anymore uh, in a racing sense. So you just hope that Mir is not someone who's, who feels shackled and, and trapped very much that Paul Spargaro has been um, over the last sort of, you know, maybe sort of eight or nine months. And, um, you know, Mark Marquez tellingly was talking about the change of concept and culture and HRC. Uh, I wonder if Mir might be the benefit of that. You know, if, if a bit of a sweeping chain co change comes into the way that the Japanese go MotoGP racing, then it could be perfect timing for, for Joan Mir. I think it's a real, like, dichotomy when you're trying to sum up just how good Mir is. I mean, on the one hand, you could say this is his third year. Uh, sorry, his fourth year in MotoGP. He's led, I think, 14 laps in that time. He's won just one race. Um, you could say for a world champion, the former MotoGP world champion, I mean, that's not really a kind of thing that you would associate with a, a real dominant performer. But then on the other hand, you look at the fact that he's been with Suzuki the entire time. Suzuki historically have not been one of the class's leading names and um, I thought it was quite interesting last year I spoke to Kevin Schwantz when we were in in Kota and he was kind of saying you know this is just the way the Suzuki thing is you know one year in maybe 10 they'll bring a, a bike capable of winning the championship and the rest of the time you have to make do with what a factory produces in that factory is one that is operating so much more in the limited budget in terms of money and personnel than its direct rivals. So 
I think when you look at it in that framework, the fact that Mira's won World Championship at Suzuki and finished third last year when the bike basically was completely unchanged or more or less unchanged from 2020. I mean, those are really impressive achievements. What I would say is quite worrying is that I'd say he's probably in the worst moment of his career at the moment. Um, things have been just going horribly wrong, uh, compounded by that big crash in Austria. Um, there is a good chance that Joan Mir is all is going into this Repsol Honda adventure with a real lack of confidence and not the kind of confident swagger of a, of a champion, of a guy that's won a world championship in MotoGP. Um, and if you're going into the, the Honda adventure with low confidence, then that could be that could be quite tricky because, um, I mean, you know, Jorge Lorenzo went into it with low confidence and never, ever got a footing in it. Um, I think Mir is better equipped to deal with a, a Honda than, than someone like Lorenzo. You know, he's, he's an aggressive rider. He's still very young. He's, what, 24? We have to remind ourselves of that. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's tough to know. It's just one of those things where it, historically it's just not going well for anyone other than Mark in that team. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I can't say either way whether it's going to go badly or going to go well. I mean, you know, it seems the the relief was almost tangible for Alex Marquez when he jumped out of Honda and, you know, signed for to ride a, a Ducati. Uh, I just wonder whether, you know, Joan Mir, if he starts getting mangled by the HRC meat grinder, then it's going to look, it's going to be a really, really bad look for Repsol Honda and also Honda itself, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, you know, uh, they've got two really, really, really good riders joining their ranks. You know, Alex Rins, um, who I think has done a pretty good job this year. And obviously Mir, who's a former champion. Um, I mean, this is really going to show the bike, you know, what, what it's made of. But, um, the kind of sweeping changes that they've mentioned that HRC seemed to be primed to make, um, you know, that, that might uh, that might benefit both of them. But um, we're yet to see the extent of those changes or, or learn what they will be. Dave, Juan turns 25 tomorrow. Is this a good birthday present or a bad birthday present to get a factory Honda contract in MotoGP? It's a job. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a, it, it's a job. <clears throat> Again, like I said, the, the surprising thing is, this, is that this took so long to actually sort of uh, nail down. There were, I mean, from what I understood, there was a lot of haggling back and forth about conditions and money and all the rest of it. And uh, Mir didn't feel like he was being, he was, you know, being paid what he deserved as a world champion. Um, and yet, every time he got on the bike, he managed to a way to lower to find a way to lower his value by crashing or um, uh, just having a miserable weekend. He, he really seems, I wouldn't say his head is gone but i would say <clears throat> that he has struggled to find um confidence i think neil is absolutely spot on when he says um that uh, it, it's going to be about he's going to end up going to repsol honda with confidence at an all-time low and that is absolutely the worst possible way to approach this uh, this tie-up so um I wouldn't say it was a particularly fantastic uh, birthday present, but I would say uh, that, as Ad says, it's a job. You know, like he has he has something for next year because otherwise he would have um, he was threatening to take a, a sabbatical, and sabbaticals never really work out. Well, let's look at another rider that has something for next year because it looks like Raúl Fernández to Ornaf Aprilia. And Adam, you've always banged the drum for Raul all the way through from Moto3 whenever he was able to get, what was a half dozen poles in one season or something around that. And then up into Moto2 last year, he was super impressive. This year, 
it's just been a disaster. After all the stuff last summer of whenever he was stepped up to MotoGP, he just hasn't been the same rider at all. And now he's going to get the opportunity to jump onto the Aprilia. Very different set of circumstances. And, you know, one of the best bikes out there now. Yeah, um, Fernando Samisti is kind of the paradox between the talent and the attitude. Uh, you know, you'd hear some stories in the paddock, uh, behind the scenes that, you know, he hasn't really put his head in the right place to tackle MotoGP. But then, you know, if you listen to his comments and you read some of the stuff he said, then, you know, he has kind of applied himself. Um, he's tried to be professional about the approach. Um, and the KTM RC16 hasn't been the easiest bike to ride, as you know, it's very, very clear to see. Uh, jumping on the Aprilia, God knows how that will work out for, you know, 2023. Um, the bike is obviously incredibly competitive this season, you know, when it comes to implementations of sprint races, tire allocations, um, any other conditions that will shape the next season, then it's really hard to call where Fernandez will go. But, you know, I think the only the really hardcore conclusion you can draw from this is that he's going to be on a better contract, which, you know, um, in the mere sense of him having employment, then I'm sure Raul's going to be happier that his bank balance is slightly swelled. Um, and, you know, is he going to be more competitive? I'm sure he doesn't know. It's a brand new team, brand new bike, but um, maybe he's just getting more coin. So that's more reason for him to be slightly happier. What has really surprised me is... Uh, because he was awesome last in uh, last year, he was really impressive last year, and he hasn't been a shadow of himself. He just he's just not turned up, um, and I'm not sure I would have signed him just for the sheer, you know, the, the, the sheer matter of the fact that he is he's. Talent is beyond question. It is clear that he's an absolutely amazing rider, but you never know whether you're going to actually have access to that talent because if he, you know, if he gets the hump, if he's decided that, that the bike isn't good enough or whatever it is, um, yeah, he's just not turning up. He's just not, uh, uh, he's not going to do anything. He's being outperformed by his teammate, Remy Gardner. Um, and yes, the bike is bad, but uh, it, it, he's just being outperformed by everyone. And, and it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 to me, uh, to me, he's been the biggest disappointment of this year. Yep. Yeah, I think it's difficult to argue with that, really, Dave, just because when you look at how good he was, and you mentioned about what he was doing in Moto2 last year, like the last half dozen races of the year, Neil, were unbelievable. He won four of them, crashed out of the lead at Mazzano and finished second in the other. So we know the talent that he has, but we're just waiting to see it to the full extent in a MotoGP bike. But I know when you talk to, and you, you do this a lot, when you talk to Moto2 riders, but the riders in that class about who they think are those real top talent riders. Raul, right from the outset last year, was the rider that everyone might mentioned. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, I've, you know, I think Raul, um, certainly among the Calax, the Calax lot, they <clears throat> see Raul as potentially the most talented rider they've ever come across. And that's saying something considering the riders that they've worked with. Um, I agree with Dave. I think he's been the biggest disappointment of this year, hands down. Um, but I'm going to go against Dave and say that <clears throat> at a guy, you know, a guy who's 21 years old, yes, his attitude doesn't seem right. Yes, you're inclined to believe Stefan Piero's comments when he said that his ensemble or his uh, his environment is a bit of a disaster. He doesn't maybe have um, the absolute right people in his ear giving him the, the, the right advice. I mean, you just have to look at what KTM did to try and appease him. 
and how he's reacted to that. I mean, KTM did everything. They, he had a two-year contract initially for Model 2. Then he was getting offers from Yamaha and Aprilia. So KTM gave him a contract for Model GP. Even after that, he was still fluttering his eyelids at rival factories. He kicked and screamed because KTM didn't have a place for his brother in Moto3. They found him a place in Tech3. Adrian Fernandez hasn't exactly lit up the Moto3 World Championship this year. Um, and Raul, yeah, as, as Dave said, is, is massively underperformed. However, he was so good last year and was so good in the junior classes. And he's 21 years old that I would like to believe that we can still see a change in that, you know. I still think he's worth taking a punt on, especially if you're a team like RNF and you've got an experienced uh, performer like Miguel Oliveira, who we know is a MotoGP, multiple MotoGP race winner. You know, that's. I think you can depend on Miguel for some decent, solid results. Uh, Fernandez, I think it's a punt, and sometimes punts work out brilliantly, and sometimes they they don't. But I think I think it's I think he's still young enough to take a punt on. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's kind of circling back to the Juan Mir question as well. You know, Steve, you said, uh, how good is Juan Mir? And, um, you know, on the same basis that Neil mentioned uh, with Raul Fernandez, you know, the, the, the class and the talent and the capability is clearly there. Um, and then it comes down to what you mentioned again earlier about the dynamic of a team. Um, you know, how does Fernandez go into RNF? How does he harness the team environment? How does he make everyone work for him? How does he blend with Oliveira, who he, he's obviously had dialogue with um, at KTM? Uh, that's that's going to be the the big questions. I mean, it is curious. I think it was in the Stefan Pierre interview again on Speed Week where uh, there was hints that the deal was done already at Jerez. So early in the season, um, it was around about the same time that Fernandez had that kind of strange hand wrist injury that kept him out for a race or two uh, that wasn't actually like proven to be any particular bone break. Uh, it was obviously a physical issue. I mean, I, we had no reason to doubt his his claim on that, but... Um, you know, in contrary to the, the Ducati situation where they give two riders a chance to really fight for the, you know, a, a seat at the, the, the golden table, um, Fernandez is the opposite where, you know, it's all done early and he's, what is he essentially doing? He's racing, um, you hope professionally for his own status, for that of Tech 3, for the sponsors and whatever else. And, um, you know, as you guys have mentioned, it hasn't been the most glittering of seasons. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, he does need the right uh, environment around him, then the RNF team is pretty good. Uh, you know, we know how good Wilco Zielenberg uh, is with uh, uh, with riders, uh, getting the best out of riders. Um, he's, he's done it historically with lots of riders. However, um, the, the thing is, I mean, one thing that I heard from, uh, or well, sort of via Moto2 was that, um, even Alex Baumgartel from, uh, Calix had difficulty getting along with, uh, with Raul Fernandez. And if you can't get along with Alex Baumgartel, then there's something seriously wrong with you. He is a lovely, charming, friendly. It gets along with everyone. There is literally no rider that he doesn't have a really good, strong relationship with. Um, uh, Raul Fernandez was the only one that he really couldn't sort of get, get any sort of contact with. So I think, I think that is a real concern. Maybe, uh, Raul just couldn't pronounce his name properly, Dave. <laughs> that must Alex be. Alex is not hard to pronounce. <laughs> Yeah, Alex from Calix. Easy, easy. Even I can manage that one. But uh, when you look at it, right, obviously, Fern uh, Fernandez is an interesting story because I think 
he shows you a lot of what can go wrong with riders. And let's be honest, a lot of the time it comes down to money and standing and how they feel respected. And Fernandez was pushed from Moto2 up to MotoGP. So there was no real discussion about his wage, how much he was going to earn. And one of the rumours that has been going around the whole way through the season is just how much that we've had for, uh, say, Remy Gardner earning as a world champion, stepping up to the MotoGP class. He doubled his wage from Moto2, but the big talk was it was still in and around 200 grand that he's earning. So for Fernandez, a rider that clearly has the knowledge of how good he is, if he was also on a similar wage, he would have just been annoyed with KTM and that set them off on a bad tone right in the outset. Now he gets the chance to leave KTM, go to his bigger wage. And I think that kind of brings us in line a little bit to who's going to be his teammate next year as well. Miguel Oliveira looks like he's going to RNF. And for Oliveira, that respect that he feels he hasn't gotten from KTM has been one of the big things that's probably driven a, a little bit of a wedge between him and the factory over the last couple of years, Neil. Whenever he saw Brad Binder get his big contract, four-year contract, and Oliveira not get it, it really seemed that that was one of the issues. Yeah, I think um, he was obviously pissed off. That was back in, what, 2019 when Brad got the uh, the nod in the factory team over him. Um, but, um, I mean, essentially, I think, you know, Mig just... Um, I guess he, he doesn't really have anyone to blame but himself because he's been just so madly inconsistent over the last nearly two years that, um, you know, you can maybe see why they, they decided to go for a fresh face and someone in Jack Miller. Um, you know, I think KTM showed that they, they you know, the value of Oliveira at Austria, at the Austrian GP, were trying to make a late play to get him to stay but by then it was a bit too late you know he is a, he is a very very good rider very classy rider um intelligent guy but um you know i think this is another move that that works out well for 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 olivera i mean um you know providing that he has the right people around him in his team you know the rnet the uh, aprilia should be a, a really good bike for him it's one of the best bikes in the grid um you know i think it's uh it's a chance for him to become you know a re- regular top six guy I, I do think I don't think there's a lack of respect between Oliveira and KTM. Uh, I do think Oliveira was somewhat scared off by the fact of going back to Tech Three um, before you know he got to Austria, and there were reassurances from very senior management of the company that you know the new Gas Gas branded team would be full full factory. Um, there might have been a delay in the past between components between say like Remy Gardner and Ralph Fernandez and what Brad Binder and Oliveira were having inside KTM. So that was a justifiable concern, but you know, from what I understand, he was offered a, a better deal with KTM for a longer time, something that really would have, you know, pushed him almost into an ambassador role if he wanted to stop racing. And Oliver is only 27. You know, he's been around a long time. You know, you have the feeling that he's pushing 30, but it's not quite the case. So I'm a little surprised that he's taken a contract with another satellite team on a bike that's only just recently become very good, uh, you know, because he was pretty much an integral part of the development of the second generation of the RC16 will actually prove to be, you know, a, a very competitive motorcycle in MotoGP. So I, I don't know. I'm just, um, I find it a bit of a strange move. I mean, in terms of career, longevity, uh, prospects, it's, um, it's really like pushing all your chips to one side of the table and saying, I'm going to try and see what I can do on the Aprilia. I'm going to see if I can win. Or, you know, it was only two years ago, Oliveira was talking about championship contention with the KTM after 2020 and he won those two Grand Prix, of course. So it's, uh, it's a curious move. Um, but it does open the door at KTM for some, uh, 
for some other possibilities. And of course, don't forget Pedro Acosta because he is uh, he's definitely on the radar. Um, you know, I think he has a bit had a big injury in Moto Two. He's definitely coming up. You know, KTM will continue grooming him and develop him for another year in intermediate class. But now then they're going to need to find a space either in Gas Gas Colors or in the Orange. It makes me wonder if. Uh, Miguel Oliveira became disillusioned with the development process of KTM because I do think that KTM has been very up and down in terms of their development. It's been, uh, they've been, or and their results, you know, they've been great and then they've been sort of nowhere. Uh, the news came out, I think, earlier this week that they'll be hiring some aerodynamicists from, from F1, uh, aerodynamicists from Red Bull. That has worked out very well for both Ducati and Aprilia. It seems to be a logical sort of step uh, now. Also, aerodynamics is much better understood, or aerodynamics on motorcycles is much better understood now than it was maybe even 10 years ago. Um, people sort of understand much better of what everything does. Uh, and so aerodynamics, F1 aerodynamics can actually make a big difference. Um, but maybe Oliveira was just tired of uh, waiting for KTM to bring in something or you know, to bring a consistently uh, competitive bike because it because it is so up and down. Yeah, just before we take our last ad break, Neil, I just wanted to ask you quickly about the second Tectois seat. And uh, it does look like Augusto Fernandez could be stepping up. And uh, obviously, Fernandez has been really strong all the way through this season in Moto2. He's made a big step forward compared to the last couple of years when he was at Mark VDS. Going to the IO squad seems to have really just reignited him again. And we know how good he can be. We saw it when he was on the Pons bike and lots of good performances in Moto2 before, but now it looks like he's really going to be in a position to step up. It does, yeah. Um, which I guess begs the argument, is Augusto a better prospect than Remy Gardner in his second year on that seat? Um, I mean, I think it's a strange move to get rid of Gardner. Um, I think he's maybe, he has the right to feel a bit hard done by. I think there's maybe been a, a bit of a lack of communication between both KTM and him um, almost as if maybe KTM were waiting for him to come and uh, you know make make nice on some of the comments that his, his manager had made earlier in the year which really seemed to incense KTM bosses and then you know Gardner himself has been kind of waiting for KTM to come to him to offer reassurances um, you know it's clear that he hasn't been having a fun time this year um, and uh yeah, but I think for him to be out of MotoGP after such a short time, after, you know, what a, what a fine kind of improvement he made in Moto2, I think that's, uh, it's a bit harsh. Um, and I wouldn't say Augusto Fernandez, as good as he is, is a, is a big improvement over, uh, over Remy. So, yeah, um, someone I spoke to in Austria that's related to, or is kind of involved with KTM basically just said, you can't make some of the comments that Remy made earlier in the year about the bike not being as competitive as it was. I think it was in France where he said, uh, basically, he hoped that a storm would come and you know rip up the track because that would basically make things a bit better for him. Who uh, such was the the kind of the struggles of the bike. So you can't make those comments. Those comments were shown to Mister Pirer, and when he hears that, then it's 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 going to be a long way back for you. So I think that was that was kind of one of the things that um, turned KTM management against him. But I think uh, I think Gardner's um, had a bit of a bum deal. I think it's uh, it's a harsh move to get rid of him. Yeah, and uh, we're going to finish off part two of the show, and when we come back, we're going to look forward to this weekend's San Marino Grand Prix with some predictions.
Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're looking forward to Mizano and the San Marino Grand Prix this weekend. And Adam, I'm going to jump straight to you. We're going to do this in alphabetical order. So uh, you're lucky. You get the first dibs. Who's going to win this weekend? Or what's your big prediction for Mizano? Uh, I think this is one of the toughest tracks to predict, Steve. I mean, if you look at previous winners, I mean, there's a real mixed bag there. Uh, you know, Honda, Ducati, Yamaha, you know, going back to Honda. Marquez has won, what, four times at the track. Uh, you know, Vinales has won. Franco Morbidelli has won. Um, you know, uh, the way he's going right now, I want to say Peko Bagnaya again. Um, you know, I think he still needs to hammer out results at this particular track and also Aragon. If he, if he wins the next two Grand Prix, then I really think Fabio Quattararo has to get a sweat on. Uh, but, you know, it's... Um, of course, it's pressure time for Peko as well. And he's been talking recently in press conferences of the weaknesses that he's corrected um, over the last season. And I think, you know, Mizano would be a really good spotlight to see exactly what improvements he has made and whether he can deliver the results. So I'll, I'll go for the Ducati man. Dave, it's interesting that Adam mentioned about Honda's wins and uh, Morbidelli's wins. It was Mark Marquez won here last year and uh, Franco won back in 2020 whenever we had a double header during the COVID season. I don't think it's too likely we're going to see a Franco win or a Honda win this weekend, but what's your prediction? Um, uh, uh, I think we're going to see a Ducati win, but uh, I think we're going to see an Aya Bastianini get back on the top of the box and uh, get his uh, factory Ducati relationship off to a good start by uh, taking points away from Pekka Banyaya. Um, I do think that it's going to be Banyaya versus uh, Quattararo. The Yamaha goes quite well around... Um, uh, around Misano, uh, the Ducati goes around well, well around there. Also, um, I think we need to keep an eye on Maverick Vinales because, you know, again, it, it's a place where Aprilia have tested a lot. It's a, it, it, the Aprilia is a much better bike. This was the first place where. Uh, Vinales actually rode the and tested the RSGP, so it's much more familiar to him. Um, yeah, I, I think there is. I, I think he's my dark horse. It's going to be. I think there is going to be a few people sort of throwing Spanish into the uh, championship works this weekend, and it's going to make it quite entertaining. Yeah, I have to say, Dave, um, Maverick is my choice for this weekend, actually. I think that it's going to be the one that suits him well. He's had, what, four poles and five races here in the past. He's a race winner, podium man in the past. So I, I would love to see him pick up wins on three different manufacturers. That's why, I, and I, I know I jumped out of turn, Neil, with my prediction, but it was just a follow-on from what Dave was saying. But I've got Maverick <laughs> for, for the win for this weekend. What about you, Neil? Um, I think Bastian is a good shot. You know, double podium there last year on a, what, two-year-old bike. Um, loves this track always has gone so well here I think he's won in Moto3 won in Moto2 um, so yeah he's, he's a good shot for sure uh, but I'm going to go with Quartararo I think just because you know what he did in Austria was <clears throat> fantastic um, arguably the ride of the day <clears throat> one of the rides of the season and um, yes Honda won the last race at Misano, but if you remember that race, I think Quartararo qualified outside the top 12. He was back up to third with, uh, what, a lap to go when he was already champion, and Bastianini nipped him uh, right at the end on the last lap at turn 14. Um, and then 
the previous Mizano race that we had in 2021. I mean, that was a great Quartararo versus Banyaya um, sort of duel in which Pekka escaped early, built up a commanding lead, and then Fabio chased him down in closing laps and didn't quite have enough for him on the final circuit. So, um, yeah, I think it could be it could be quite t- tasty this weekend. Um, Mizano hasn't always thrown up great MotoGP racing, but I think, um, yeah, you, you have to look at Fabio, Bastianini, Banyaya. Um, you know, maybe Fabio can... can pull another rabbit out of the hat like he did in Austria and uh, and get among them, maybe even above them. So I say, Steve, have you picked Vignales because you've already looked at the odds on some betting website and, you know, your, <laughs> you, your wallet's getting all trembly? <laughs> uh, I'll be honest, right? So I, I'm not going to lie to you, Ad. I did put a bet on recently and uh, it was... I was very confident in the Max Verstappen part of my accumulator to win the F1 World Championship. I wasn't so confident about some of the bike-related ones, but uh, I did well in BSB at the weekend with Danny Buchan, so I've got a little bit to play with, so that's where the Vinales money's coming from. Steve, if you're betting on F1, then you deserve all the losses that you accumulate, I have to say. Um, and if you bet on Vinales... Not whenever it's about the Dutch star, though, Dave. <laughs> um, who? <laughs> I didn't know Michael van der Mark was racing in Formula 1 um, Neil just very quickly though about Moto E as well we've got the final round of the Moto E World Cup Domi Agador against Eric Granado Granado's been in good form last time out in Austria and he's what, won three in a row but uh, Agador's still holding on to that championship lead uh, yeah it should be uh, it should be quite tasty Steve the, the last couple of times we've had showdowns at Mizano and Moto E it's been, it's been pretty exciting um, most particularly, of course, last year when I think we had the most exciting Moto E contest of all time um, so far. So yes, I think there's uh, 16.5 points between, sorry, 17.5 points between Egeter and Granado. I mean, that's a handy advantage for uh, for Egeter to have. However, um, you know, things tend to get thrown up in the air when uh, there's a championship on the line. Um, and Egeter, I think, came here in 2020 with a chance at the title and uh, and blew it. Um, I guess he didn't come away looking great from last year's title fight with uh, Jordi Torres. So uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. Um, and as you say, Granado's got what three wins on the bounce. Um, you know, he's going to be the one maybe coming here with less pressure. So yes, I think it's going to be something interesting. Races, of course, on Saturday and Sunday. Um, so I would say that would be uh, well worth keeping an eye on. It's a little bit of a milestone as well, isn't it? The last uh, race for Energica before everything changes to Ducati. So it might even be worth just kind of watching it for that for that viewpoint. But um, talking about it another might championship, even be worth what? <laughs> talking about another championship. Um, don't forget our fantasy league. Um, Paul and I, you know, Paul Spargo and I have something in common. Um, he's forty four, and now I'm I've slumped to position forty four in our league, um, which is a source of great consternation for me. Um, I was but about to it, say, wait, you're not forty four years old. You're older than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Valentino Rossi, mate. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, who else would you want rather want to be? Um, Paddock Pass Podcast Knowles. If anyone wants to join our league, there's currently 333 of us battling for big honours and hopefully a very big pa- uh, package from Oakley at the end of the season for the eventual winner. Um, I would like to ask you guys where you are, but I'm sure you probably don't know. Um, I'm sure Neil hasn't given it much attention. As you can tell from his pre-race predictions, he does like to name sort of quite a large quota of the field and hasn't been too accurate in his predictions. But we will be asking the same question, Neil, on the Paddock Pass podcast note show through Patreon over the weekend. Uh, sorry if I'm stealing your plug, Steve. But um, yeah, if anyone wants to join the Fantasy League, then Paddock Pass Podcast Knowles is the name. 
Yeah, I stopped. Yeah, I, I have stopped. To say, I st- just, I st- just, just to interrupt, Dave. Just to interrupt you. The amount of attention that I've paid to our fantasy league has been where I still have Mark Marquez in it, <laughs> and what he hasn't raised since Majestic. He's still the top under, so, uh, yeah. It, yeah, it's a wonder, Adam, that you're beating me in that one. <laughs> yeah, I've half paid uh, attention to it and uh, tried to uh, uh, sort of swap riders in and out, and yet I'm still. I mean, I don't even know where I am, but um, uh, it's it's not good. It's not good at all. The Netherlands, that's where you are, dude. Oh, oh, right. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, too, too many painkillers after that by Crash Dave. But, uh, Neil, we've also got um, Junior GP in action this weekend, which is quite cool. It's uh, going to be a good chance for everyone to be able to catch up on some of that. Jose Antonio Rueda can win the Junior GP World Championship this weekend as well. He's been stunning all the way through the season. He looks like he's going to be on course to do the double in the Red Bull Rookies and also the Junior GP Championship. I'm excited to see that this weekend it's always fun whenever you get the chance to look at them in support of uh, the grand prix classes because it's an opportunity to see something a little bit different and uh, a one-off round you wait and see what happens and it's going to be interesting interestingly for for me from an irish perspective casey o'gorman racing this weekend casey has raced in junior gp in the past that's why with the age limits this year it's always interesting to see which riders are going to try and push themselves into junior gp to get the chance to race in it going forward so good chance for him to be able to do something in that as well so i'm going to be keeping an eye on junior gp action but uh, obviously steve I've, everyone's going to be keeping an eye on patreon over the weekend sorry Neil. Steve, i've got four classes to keep abreast of already this weekend don't try and add another what 40 riders in junior gp and tell me i need to know all of all, all the goings on there as well <laughs> oh that Junior GP's there just for whenever you're having your lunch, Neil. Something to watch in the background. It's ideal. And I've also got MXGP. It's the last Grand Prix of um, the motocross season. And two points between Tom Viao and Yago Gertz for the MX2 World Championship. So, uh, busy weekend, Neil. I think we might be having pizza in the press room at this rate. Obviously enough, Adam, you're going to be in the press room quite a lot over the course of the weekend. You're going to be recording the Paddock Pass podcast, Paddock Notes show. And uh, a good opportunity to be able to chat with Dave and Neil and uh, get everyone up to speed on everything that's happening over the course of the weekend on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast myself and Gordo just uh, recorded a show about uh, our perspective on sprint races as well and uh, what we've learned from the superbike paddock before the introduction of MotoGP sprint races next year so give that a listen if you support us on patreon that's available for all of our patreon subscribers that's everyone that's uh, paying from three dollars a month upwards if you want to get the paddock notes show that costs ten dollars a month but uh, we got a little, little bit of Paddock Pass podcast merchandise included in that tier as well. So mugs, hoodies, a few other bits and pieces. So check that out on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. Adam, I'm going to go and uh, update my uh, MotoGP fantasy team. I think I've still got a chance of catching you. So I'll probably take Mark off that list. I might put uh, I might put Paul into it instead and uh, wait and see how that goes. Um, obviously, we're going to be busy over the next few weeks in the Paddock Pass podcast. Next week, we're going to be reviewing the Mizano Grand Prix. Dave, you can give us another crack at, uh, presenting, at uh, pronouncing that full title if you so wish. No. <laughs> okay fair enough um adam's going to do that all the way through the weekend and it's going to be probably about as disastrous as if i had to try it we've also got world Superbikes coming back in the next couple of weeks so myself gordo and charlie are going to be back on the show for that and uh yeah it's just the the start of the the busy stretch towards the end of the season now so big thanks to Renthal street and to fly racing for supporting the podcast for everyone that listens and uh, big thanks to dave adam and neil for being on the show and 
uh, Jensen Beeler for editing this show as well. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Now, Adam, this is going to be an interesting one. The Grand Primero, Grand Primero Gryphon. The Grand Primero Gryphon de San Marino e della Rivia, Rivia de Rimini. Don't forget the accent, Steve. <laughs> a Grand Premio. When, Steve, why don't you just it's, say... But then is it, is it Grand Premio and then you go into a Welsh accent for Gryphon? The Grand Primero Gryphon de San Marino e della Riviera de Rimini. Why don't you just set it up and say, now over today for the pronunciation of the Grand Prix?